Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Ann Wilson. The four-time Grammy nominee and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer is best known as the lead singer and co-songwriter for the band Heart, which she and her sister Nancy formed in 1973 and propelled to rock superstardom. One of the pioneering female-fronted rock bands, Heart's self-pinned classics include Crazy on You, Magic Man, Dreamboat Annie, Barracuda, Little Queen, Heartless, Straight On, Dog and Butterfly, and Even It Up. In the mid-1980s, they reinvented themselves as mainstream radio hitmakers with a string of successful singles including What About Love, Never, These Dreams, Nothing At All, Alone, Who Will You Run To, There's The Girl, All I Want To Do Is Make Love To You, and Stranded. As Hart, Anne and Nancy Wilson have sold more than 35 million albums worldwide. Since 2007, Anne has released three full-length studio albums and two EPs. Her most recent, Fierce Bliss, which was released at the end of April, is her first solo album to include original material. Part one. Well, Scott, people might not know this, but you and I are friends outside of this podcast. Yes, um, and I'm I'm glad that you regard me as such. Yeah, for now. Um, <laughs> and as such, we, uh, we've been to a, a few shows together. This past, like in the last couple of weeks, we drove down to San Diego to see Pearl Jam together. Yep. And we both went to see Paul McCartney, not together. Right. But we were both there at the same show. Uh, had a great time at both shows. Yeah, I um, would have sat with you if uh, if you'd had decent seats, but <laughs> right. I I sat down where I could see. Yo, I I took my children, and so <laughs> I, you know, they're not going to go to college, but they've seen Paul McCartney now. Um, and and that second mortgage is totally doable. Totally, it's yeah, completely worth it. Um, <laughs> but we were talking on that drive down to San Diego about all the shows we've been to together, and we're we're dating back now to about 1991. Yeah. Um, from, be, you know, being friends and going to shows together. And I think the first one that we went to together might have been Elton John at Starwood Amphitheater in uh, Nashville. I think that was 92. Wow. That would be the, uh, <laughs> you're like, we go back to shows all the way back to 91. The first one uh, well, was in 92. Well, we played a show in 91. We I think we played play shows show. in 91. Right, right. Uh, no, you're right. I remember going to see Elton John with you at Starwood Amphitheater in yeah. Nashville and uh, and it was actually that's the only time I've seen Elton John. Wow. Uh, the the that was the when he did the the one was that the name of the album? That was yeah. yeah. And I remember we were thinking like, man, he he's old. I hope he can still do it. <laughs> and I don't think he was as old as we are now. Right. And and he is still doing it now <laughs> he's at, at um, a very high level. Well, I, and I think you know with the with the pandemic, I know that. Um, you know, there are, are those who essentially ignored it uh, and those who are still in an underground bunker. Um, <laughs> and I, I think you and I are, are you know, we, we were pretty cautious. Yeah. We were very cautious during the pandemic, didn't go out to, to a lot of public gatherings. And now we are kind of cautiously uh, reemerging. So concerts, uh, I think we were both in a, in a kind of you know, reflective, uh, nostalgic mood because yeah. it's, it's been a while since we've been kind of part of a large concert crowd. And the, the Pearl Jam show that we went to in San Diego the other night was, um, 
I got to I got to be honest, like we're both Pearl Jam fans. Uh, You're a bigger Pearl Jam fan than I am. Uh, And I was solidly with Pearl Jam for their first three albums or so. And and I didn't dislike what came after. I just, you know, I kind of drifted away. And occasionally you'd be like, man, you got to hear this new Pearl Jam song. I was always like, wow, that sounds amazing. Uh, But you said, hey, do you want to go down to San Diego? And I was like, oh, my favorite taco place is down there. Uh, nice reason. drive with Paul and it's yeah. a bonus. I'll get to see Pearl jam and they'll probably play a few songs that, that I, I know. Uh, but man, that show was epic. That was so one of the best concerts. Uh, well, I can't say that I've seen in the last few years cause you know, this yeah. is our reemergence, well, yeah. <laughs> but it's actually one of the best concerts I've seen. Yeah. Um, and man, it just reminded me like how, uh, you know, we talk with songwriters and we, we talk about records a lot, but you know, those same songs when delivered in a live setting, it's a different experience. And it's, it's it reminded me how electrifying it can be. Well, and when you see a band that's been playing for a long time, uh, the show is not just a chance for them to get out and just, you know, show off on their instruments. It's actually a celebration of a catalog. Right. Um, and seeing the Pearl Jam catalog and how those songs f- still feel really resonant, you know, a song like Alive, I think, takes on a different resonance for all of us who have survived the last <laughs> few years. Um, a song like Jeremy um, holds, you know, tons of weight, you know, because uh, gun violence hasn't gone away. Right. Um, so, you know, those songs still feel immediate uh, and, and emotional. And then to see Paul McCartney, I mean, you talk about a celebration of a catalog. My, oh my gosh. Lord. Um, you, you could make an incredible, you could make two more incredible set lists out of the songs he didn't play. Right. That's, that's what kind of catalog that guy has. But to sit there and watch him run through, you know, starting with Can't Buy Me Love. Right. Um, then doing Wings hits like, you know, Live and Let Die, uh, Band on the Run, Junior's Farm, uh, the, the solo stuff that he did, and then closing with the, the medley from the end of Abbey Road. Yeah. You're just almost exhausted from the <laughs> weight of the beauty uh, you know, I, I thought Junior's Farm was an odd choice for second song. Uh, well, think about it though. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Uh, okay, to, yeah. for the show, like sure, get, you know, and then followed up with Letting Go. I feel like Letting Go. Right. I think there might have been like a lyrical. Sorry for all of you who weren't at the show, um, <laughs> but we're just kind of pretend that you were. I think there was a little bit of of a lyrical uh, focus to what it feels like to open a show. Okay. Although he could have done rock show from yeah. the Venus and Mars album. He he could have. Uh, which is about that. (laughs) (laughs) I I think seeing McCartney at age 80, almost 80, um, like a month away, like a month away from 80. uh, The thing that's remarkable is he didn't sound like young Paul, right? No, nobody sounds like their young selves when they're 80. Um, But for an 80 year old dude who's on stage for two and a half hours, never takes a break. You know, a lot of older artists will do like, you know, the guitarist will step up and do a song while they leave the stage or whatever. Never took a break, you know, just cranked through it and, you know, seemed to have an endless well of energy. And you you can tell that, you know, some of the more melodic songs he didn't do here, there and everywhere. There's certain things that he probably couldn't do. So he also has a great instinct for what are the songs that I can still pull off? Yes. You know, he's not going to try to do certain things that he can't pull off. Unfortunately, when you've written that many hits, then (laughs) you have plenty to draw from. Um but it really is just remarkable to 
see a guy with that kind of energy when I'm like, you know, when we finish these interviews, we walked to Chipotle and I basically need to like sit down and take a break from that. So, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> see him up there. It's crazy. There might be some like cryotherapy or hyperbaric chambers well, going on here. Is he vegan or vegetarian? Uh, he's one of those. Yeah. And I think that's probably has a lot to do with it. it. Could have a lot I to mean, do with it. I do enjoy uh, myself a good steak and, uh, but boy, <laughs> there's no energy in a steak. <laughs> there's no energy. In a <laughs> there, steak. there is only a nap. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I, so I think maybe the he's made some life choices that I think have benefited him. You know, one one act that I don't think either one of us ever got to see, um, but I would love to go see Hart. I'd love to go see Ann Wilson in any context. Yeah. Um, to hear that voice fill up a room because anything I've seen from her, uh, just you know, videos of live stuff has been pretty you know spine tingling. Yeah. Um, and it, even talking to her in, in this upcoming interview. Uh, you can hear it in her speaking voice. When you can hear an iconic singing voice talk to you, I, I can hear it right. just when she's speaking. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really cool just to be able to, to like interact with that voice. Yeah, it's like, wait, totally. that's the voice from Barracuda. Incredible. I made that voice laugh. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, no, she is amazing. And, and we obviously uh, got to speak to Nancy a while back, so it was really cool to to have both of the the heart sisters yeah both sides uh, of the coin yeah be able to to be a part of the the podcast and um yeah so you know we're gonna we're gonna hit play on this you guys are gonna listen to this interview and we're gonna go find a concert to go to let's go part two once again our guest on this episode is heart co-founder and rock and roll hall of famer ann wilson She's sold over 34 million albums worldwide with the band and has recently released her latest solo project, Fierce Bliss. Just a quick note about audio quality. This interview was recorded remotely and there is a bit of a lag that creates some occasional mild distortion. It's not a big deal. And you'll also hear a few notification sounds from a phone. And, you know, Anne is one of the coolest rock vocalists in history. So, yeah, people want to contact her. So don't worry about it. And welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for having me. You have a brand new album, and it opens right up with the song Greed, which is like a, a mid-tempo rocker that just comes out heavy right in the moment. And I was reading something you said about the song. You said, it's an aggressive song, and I think I write best when I'm angry. <laughs> and a look around the world these last few years, at least to me, there's a lot to be angry about. And I wonder um, if you've been able to draw some inspiration from a, a world that's kind of been in crisis a bit. Yeah, I think that I carry a low-level PTSD of stress like most people do these days. <sighs> I think it's, it's pretty widespread across our whole race right now. Yeah. Um, in terms of greed, I just, um, I, like I say that I write best when I'm angry because that's when the filter comes off. And sometimes when I'm trying to write a song, I'll get, I'll let the critics in the room, you know, I'll let my own critics dictate what goes down on the page and then usually nothing happens I get into a blocked state so with anger and with extreme emotion those filters will go away and you just I just throw everything down and then go back and harvest You know, on the show, we talk 
obviously with songwriters and we talk a lot about their own songs and their own process and, and inspirations and that kind of thing. Um, but one of the songs in the new record is a cover of missionary man by the Eurythmics and, you know, Annie Lennox and, and Dave Stewart are fantastic songwriters. And, um, when you have an artist who is a writer themselves, I'm always curious to kind of get into their head a little bit about, um, what songs, uh, they're drawn to that they want to cover because, right. If you, if you write songs yourself, you can just write your whole album if you want, but sometimes you're drawn to interpreting, um, you know, the songs of others. And in 2018, you did an entire, uh, album called immortal, um, that was cover songs of, of artists who, who are no longer with us. Um, would love to get your insights as a writer yourself on, why cover other people's songs and, and, and what draws you to, to certain songs, you know, because you can't kind of put away that, that writer instinct, even when you're interpreting. Right. Yeah. But I, but I um, started out as a young person, just singing everybody else's songs when I was um, honing my craft, you know, and, and uh, to me, it's, it's, it's an honor to get to sing other people's songs. I mean, there's some beautiful songs out there that really reach in and touch you on a deep level. Hmm. So I'm not, um, I'm not shy about covering songs at all, especially, but they have to be ones that I just love, you know, that I can't live without singing <laughs> like right. the, on the new record, the, the bridge of size and the, um, you know, the uh, missionary man one, I thought were just so much fun to sing. And the Jeff Buckley song, forget her. And Love of My Life with Vince Gill. I mean, those are all songs that just have such a deep substance to them. They just really grab me. You know, one of the things that I notice from time to time about a seasoned songwriter like yourself is that there, there'll be a line in a song that's like just incredibly clever. And yet it's not the title of the song. It's, it's not the line that, that everything kind right. of hinges on. Um, and when I listen to A Moment in Heaven and I hear the phrase, uh-huh. Hollywood be thy name. I'm like, man, that is one of the <laughs> coolest, most clever lyrics I've heard in a long time. And yet it's not something that you've felt the need to sort of hinge the whole song on, even though it kind of lands on it as a crux. A virgin dream and team, it can be so. I'd like to know what that song is about and even kind of what that line means to you. Yeah, well, the song is, um, it's a send up of the um, star maker machinery in Hollywood that uh, produces line after line of these, um, these young people who, will become stars for just a moment. And then because of the planned obsolescence theory, the next moment they're not, and mm. they're, they're living in their van again, you know? And just the whole, the whole um, sort of production line that is going on there. And, and Hollywood be thy name, I think just, I just thought that that just rolled off the tongue and yeah. it said it all really, you know, that's, that's just what they do. And that's just, that's the signature of that particular area 
this such a company town. When it comes to writing, generally speaking, are you someone who kind of saves up some songs and and then at some point you go, you know, I I, I sort of feel uh, an album coming together here. I feel like it's it's time for a new project. Or are you the type of writer who kind of says, hey, it's time for a new project and then starts assembling songs, you know, for that project? I think the songs always come first with me. Um, when I did uh, the Immortal record, which was all covers, um, the concept for the album came first. But most of the other times, it's been the other way around where some great songs get written and pretty soon there's four or five of them. And then you start to go, wow, I must have an album that's ready to be born. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, with with this last one, it was definitely that way. I had some demos. I had like yeah. four or five demos and I went to Muscle Shoals in Alabama and um, I just wanted to sort of develop them and see what was there. And I met these musicians that I'm now in a band with and mm. they helped me develop the demos and pretty soon we were writing together and then pretty soon we had Fierce Bliss, you know? Yeah. It was, it, it was easy, natural. Well, kind of going all the way back to the start in, in 2021, you release an EP called the day breaks. And, and these were recordings from back from your early band daybreak. And, uh, we're talking about what is essentially your very first recordings, including some cover songs and, you know, original stuff like through eyes and glass. Laughing, crying all the same time again to play the game and they walking hand in hand from the train don't understand Get off the train, get off the train, get off the train Would love to kind of get a sense, you know, we talked about your approach to, to writing now but talk a bit about your approach to songwriting in those very early days when you were very first getting started and and really just kind of figuring out how to put a song together and 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 how songs work you know what what was sort of your process in those early days when you were figuring it out well uh, those first really early songs like through ice and glass were written when when nancy and i were still living at our parents house we were just teenagers and and um we, uh, you know, we lived in a comfortable suburban house with everything we wanted was supplied for us. We had good enough clothes. We, you know, we weren't wanting for anything, but they were playing Bob Dylan songs on the radio, you know, and so it was popular to just look down your nose at suburbia huh. and just, um, just be an activist against Mr. Jones, the the man, you know, and so there we were in our comfy house with our parents watching over everything, writing these protest songs about that and and, and uh, <laughs> through eyes and glass, just about fake people, you know, two 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 people who were who were being fake for each other. Right. And um, I don't know, I don't know where where we got off thinking we knew anything about the world, but uh, uh, we would just sit in our room and Nancy would plunk on the guitar that she was just learning how to play and I would be scribbling out lyrics or poems you know in my notebook and that's how we did it and and um 
that's the same uh, process that we used all along for the songs for Heart and everything. I just love the audacity, you know, of young artists. You're just learning to play guitar, just learning to write, and you sit there and you go, yeah, maybe this will matter to the world one day. And then now you look back and you go, we were right. 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 How in the world were we yeah. right? Yeah, well, you you do have this feeling as a young, you know, untried, unspoiled artist that um, whatever you say is deathless and that the whole world is listening and watching. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so that does give you a kind of audacity that's that's really pure. You know, I, I have to make a confession. I mean, like like most of America, I I you know grew up being a fan of the heart stuff, and I I felt like I knew so much about it. And one of the things I would listen to Crazy on You, and I would think, man, I love that Mellotron in the verse. It's so cool. And now I'm reading the credits as we're sort of putting uh, this interview together, and it says Ann Wilson flute. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh my gosh, I, how did I not know this? And I go back and listen, I'm like, that's clearly a flute. Was that something that you figured would be a really prominent part of Hart's music, you know, in kind of in a Jethro Tull type vein where you guys would be known as sort of a flute oriented band or, or was that just something you sort of snuck in there? Well, no, I never thought we'd be flute oriented, but um, that was an instrument that I played all my young life and still do, but I started in fourth grade and it was just like part of me, really. It was the guitar and the flute and I've never been a really much of a virtuoso on it. I can play a line, you know, I can, I can play like an easy solo type of thing, but I can make the flute sound good. Mm. So that's what we used it for in heart was just a line here and there, but a really nice sound, you know, where you can hear the air and you can hear what the flute actually is. And I, um, I gotta say that I was influenced heavily by, by the Moody Blues flute, uh, Ray mm. Thomas. I used to love the way he played the flute in that band back in the day. As I'm listening to, to that song and, and the others on that first record, you know, you really hear the exuberance of, of youth and, and that audacity we were talking about. For and sure. the other thing that I'm hearing is that, you know, you as a as writer slash vocalist or vocalist slash writer, however you saw yourself in those days, you know, you have a different role than anyone else who's contributing to the song because you're writing for your own voice. Um, and... And in, in the way you sing crazy, I won't attempt to do it, but, you know, <laughs> the, the number of kind of movements in that melody where it kind of slides up high and falls down, that's not something anybody would necessarily think of unless they were the singer and you knew that your voice could do that. And that, that sort of leads me to start thinking about the fact that, like, if people go to do karaoke, you know, they, you could do a, an amazing song like Yesterday um, and, a, and a good singer could do it some kind of justice. I can't really imagine somebody going in and just crushing crazy on you at karaoke because that song feels like it is made for one voice and one voice alone. Um, it, it, do you get that feeling? Are there certain songs that you go, yeah, that's, that's really Anne-centric, um, you know, in terms of the way it's constructed? 
Yeah, that, that sounds crazy on you. Um, that's that's probably the most challenging one that we do that we did, and um, for for me as a vocalist, hmm. and it was placed in a key that was really just felt really good for my 24 year old voice. And um, <laughs> so it's, so it's high and it's, it's a uh, full voice and it's all that, all that physicality, you know, I can still do it in the same key and everything, but it isn't as easy as it used to be. Yeah. You're, you're a little mad at your younger self for making yeah, yourself. Right, right. <laughs> why'd you, why'd you have to prove it so hard? <laughs> Um, well, that Dreamboat Annie record, you know, of course, has has so, so many classic songs, Crazy on You, Magic Man. Um, I want to ask you about a song on that record, uh, How Deep It Goes. That's a song that um, is credited to just you solo, and uh, it's kind of got more of a kind of a Carol King, you know, vibe more than a you know a, a hard rock vibe. And I'm always interested in you know writers who are known for writing primarily collaboratively when when they put something out that's just them, you know, and, and they're the only writer on it. We see that had you been a solo artist, <laughs> would, would we have seen more kind of that sort of direction for you career wise, or, or is this just one of many facets of your songwriting personality? I think it's just one of many facets, but how deep it goes was the first one I ever wrote by myself. And it was written prior to even the um, magic man crazy on you time it was written long before that so and here's song the other one those two were my first two songs ever written and they were gentle and soft and sort of innocent uh, romantic schoolgirlish type stuff but once I got into the band and I felt the jolt and the thrill of actually rocking I think that went into my um, sensibility right away one of the things that I think is probably made way too much of is is for people to kind of throw around, you know, female rockers or yeah, the best yeah. female fronted band. And it's a, it's a silly distinction to make um, I because I don't know what sort of expectation people have of a female band or a, a female front person. Um, but I, I found something when I was listening that there's an effortless empowerment in the music that you guys make because it's not attempting to be female fronted or, or to wear that out. And you just sort of created and presented these characters mm -hmm. who were not going to take any shit. I mean, that's honestly yeah. kind of what I hear in the music and it's, yeah, I, again, I say it's just effortlessly empowering. Um, and how early on did you find yourself annoyed by the distinction of <laughs> yeah. female fronted rock band? I mean, did, did it take 10 years or were you immediately like, no, I don't want to hear that. Well, yeah, it was pretty immediate because the first thing that we had to do was to break down this lack of credibility obstacle that was thrown up in front of us. Well, like my sister Nancy used to get this backhanded compliment sometimes like, boy, you sure are a real pretty girl and you play guitar really good for a girl, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, that type of stuff was, that was irritating. But uh, having said that, we were raised by a mother in a house who, and a father too, um, in a house where it was a little bit of a secret garden where, where, um, where misogyny was concerned because our father was not a misogynist and we had never really heard of it, uh, least of all experienced it. So we just had this confidence that was injected into us by our parents from the get go. So when we came into the music industry and then there it was, that, that was what led me to get mad and write the words to Barracuda. Riding high, the band was getting really strong and sounding good and we were starting to get good gigs and we were, um, uh, Dreamboat Annie was out and doing really well and we were opening up for the Kinks in Detroit. And uh, we, after our set, we were back in the dressing room and there were all kinds of industry guys crowding into our room, you know, like they do for young bands. And, the, and back then they were, they had a more of a sleazy, they weren't as smooth as they are now. They were way sleazier, it seemed like. A lot more pinky rings and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, and so this one guy came up to me and he said, so Annie, you know, so how's your lover? How's your lover doing? And I motioned to my significant other across the room, Mike Fisher, and said, he's doing fine. You should go say hi to him. And he goes, no, 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 your sister, you know, you and your sister, two chicks yeah. together, you know, Jeez. and it, it was so sleazy. And so it, it just caught me wrong at that moment because I'd never experienced that kind of um, perception before. Mm, like yeah. Nancy and I felt that, that we were these two pure sort of musical pilgrims bringing the word to the, to the people. And we never dreamed that we would just be looked at like a couple of porn babes yeah. So, so I got mad. I went back to the hotel room and I wrote um, the words to Barracuda. You know, Barracuda has something on it that I think uh, Magic Man has on it as well. And I would say, I'm going to explain what I mean, but I'm just going to come out and say those songs sound like, like, like they have bad intentions. And that's to me is one yeah. of like the, the most authentic rock and roll feeling things that there is. It's not about a guitar sound. It's not about a tempo. It's that man, this song sounds like it's got bad intentions and might be dangerous for me to listen yeah. to. And the moment <laughs> yeah. that that first, you know, comes out on Magic Man, I'm like, oh my gosh, this song wants to hurt me. And then the same thing with that rumbling riff on Barracuda. Um, and it, it, I guess you just know when you feel it, right? Well, you're, you're talking about tones and, and 
like Roger Fisher could have played that riff on the beginning of Barracuda, but if the sound hadn't been right in the studio, like if our producer, Mike Flicker, hadn't gotten it just so, yeah. it wouldn't have that chi that you're talking about. That, that like, oh my God, I have to go 90 miles an hour now. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's crazy. I'm 46 years old and, and Magic Man will come on. I'm like, man, I don't know if I should be listening to this. I don't <laughs> want my mom to hear. What will happen? It's okay. Yeah. What, right. Leave me down. This is a gateway drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are the, those are some cool sounds they got. And of course it was all analog. So you could record things a little bit too hot and they would just push the needle a little bit into the red and they'd sound really great. Yeah. A little bit broken up, you know, and exciting and sort of like it's cooking. Yeah. Well, by the time the Dog and Butterfly album came around, you know, we had hit songs like Straight On, a, a song that definitely showed development in, in the sound, kind of brought you guys to uh, a, a step in a slightly different direction. Um, but that was one of the first big heart songs that was co-written with Sue Ennis. And Sue right. has since become, you know, uh, a really important part of the writing team. And uh, but but this is where we kind of see the, the genesis of that, where it's not, you know, you writing solo or, or you and your sister, but now you've got a kind of a third person in the collaboration. Um, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on what Sue brought to the table that, that kind of completed the puzzle and worked so well from a songwriting perspective and, and kind of, you know, changed the direction going forward in terms of how you guys wrote. Well, I think what she brought to the table was kind of similar to what someone like Van Dyke Parks brought to the Beach Boys. Um, um, cool concepts, some some cool lyric ideas that we could bounce off of. And we were always trying to push the topics out, you know, like come up with new and different things. And one of the songs that I think did that the best was Mistral Wind, which is a big extended metaphor song about the, uh, the orgasm or the creative experience, you know, like you're in the doldrums and then this big thing blows through and you have this big experience and then it blows on by and you're back in the doldrums again. concept was one that Sue came up with, uh, which I thought was great. I didn't even know what the Mistral Wind was until she explained it to me because, you know, I was just a rock and roller and she, she was a doctoral candidate at Berkeley. And so, and so yeah. I learned, I learned a lot of little things like that from, from her about songwriting, about yeah. lyric writing. You know, uh, Scott mentioned Straight On, and, and that's a song that has just like kind of a slight color of, of the disco elements that were happening yeah, at, the, at right. the time. Um, and then I think about a song like Even It Up, which brings in the Tower of Power horn section. Yeah. 
guys were obviously wanting to kind of do some things sonically that that kept I, I was about to say the heart <laughs> the heart of the heart sound um but also wanted to sort of add to it you know with with what you were hearing and what was going on around you did, did you ever have moments where you felt like oh we're about to go too far you know where, where you're you know you want to hang on to the soul of what the band is you guys did such an incredible job of walking that tightrope of adding new elements and still feeling like heart did it feel risky to do that well yeah but but uh we were thrilled by risk and um mm. there were some times we did go too far and we didn't know it until the album didn't sell or something like that right. um but that's a big huge part of the th fun and the thrill of being your own songwriter is that you keep pushing and you keep trying things and um you know i never i never attached to an idea of what heart was I never thought, well, this is the heart sound and we should make sure that we keep it and preserve it and don't change it. And this is our formula. I never mm. thought that for a single day. There are a lot of people around me that did, but not me. And so I always had these, these ideas like, well, come on, let's, let's do a, let's get the tower horns up here and do this thing and I'll play bass, you know, and do even it up and make it into like a stones with, with big greasy horns, you know, yeah. type thing. Um, and straight on, I think was like that too. It was like, well, let's, let's get as close to James Brown as we can get. I'd love to sing something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were always pushing. I mean, there, there's a tremendous confidence in that, honestly, when, you know, cause so, sometimes people can freeze up and tighten up. You, you have hits yeah. and you go, oh no, we've got, we've got to make more hits. And, and some, you know, the confidence strangely can get lost with success, which seems odd, but it seems like something we see from time to time. Do you have any idea why you were able to maintain that type of confidence um, in in your creative instincts? You know, because sometimes I wonder, it being, you know, being sisters together and being of a common purpose, did that help? Or, or like you mentioned, being in a home that was sort of free of of you know, any sort of undue expectations or misogyny when it, when it comes to being a female or female artist, do you know where that confidence came from? I think to a large degree, it came from my parents because they, they never uh, laid anything on us that we were expected to be, um, you know, other than just stuff like table manners and things like that. But, but there was never a thing like, well, you should go learn to type and be a secretary, or you should go and be a doctor. Hmm. or we expect you to be an attorney like they never did that ever they just said you're really great and you're smart and you like we love the way you write and like sing your songs to us again and then they would love the songs and that gave us confidence on this really primal level hmm. that our very parents you know dug us so yeah i think it started from there but then Having hits at a young age, especially um, on an indie label, where they didn't lay anything on us either, yeah. uh, we were free to be confident. Yeah, yeah. I have two daughters myself, and it's it's good for me to hear that an emphasis on table manners will not deprive them of their rock and roll spirit. Um, <laughs> it, it, it will not. It will. Okay, because because we're trying right now, and I and I, I want to make sure they've still got it. So that's, that's yeah. good. Um. 
we were started really paying attention to music in, you know, the, the mid eighties and, and, you know, you're at that age where you're just kind of a preteen and you're kind of figuring out what kind of music you like. And so I know for myself, I was listening to, um, kind of the classic rock station. We both grew up in Nashville and I would listen to, you know, 104.5, the classic rock station. And then at the same time, I'm listening to Y107, which was the pop top 40 station. And I remember, uh, kind of knowing Hart's songs from the 70s because I would hear them on the classic rock station. But then at the same time, you've got like the self-titled Hart album that came out in 1985. Um, and you're hearing songs like What About Love and Never and, and These Dreams. I don't think I even knew that it was the same band for a while till I got a yeah. little older and went, oh, wow, okay, because I'm now connecting the dots. And, you know, while there was like maybe the biggest commercial success that you guys had had with that self-titled record in 85 and, and the Bad Animals record in, in 87, in some ways it, it was a little different in terms of songwriting because even though you guys were still writing, the singles that the label was pushing um, were written by other writers. And, you know, I, I find that a little... Um, almost a little odd, I guess, as an outside observer and would love to kind of get your thoughts on the push and, and pull of being a writer, being a creator, but also being an artist and wanting to, you know, find that commercial success. Um, but sometimes finding it, you know, using your voice, but someone else's words. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, good perception. Uh, it, it, it wasn't the same band. It was a different band. It was Nancy and I and Howard Lees and Denny Carmasi and Mark Andes. So we had a whole different rhythm section, a whole different sound, a whole different look. I mean, we'd signed a capital thinking that, okay, we need to clean house and come back with something fresh and new. And uh, music was changing. Guitars were, Nancy was being told that acoustic guitar was completely out. It was off the table. In fact, regular guitars were just really not that hip or trendy. Mm -hmm. And all these new keyboards were happening. So the whole sound became this layer cake of all this glossy synthesizer stuff. And um, the drums had all this echo on them and the, the voice had tons of echo and gloss on it. So the whole thing is just like this, this big, you know, sort of anonymous, glistening thing that you can hardly even hear the soul through some of the songs are good like what about love i thought was a good song these yep. dreams was a good song um alone was a good song there were a few of them that have stood the test of time that, that were written by other people that um i could really get my teeth into but most of them were pretty they were like empty fish tanks and you could pour any artist into them and they would become the fish, you know, like that wow. song. Uh, All I want to do is make love to you was written for Don Henley. And, huh. and he turned it down. So they, they put it in front of us and said, well, this is your next hit single. So do it. And huh. <laughs> so we did it. And uh, we flipped the gender around. And that was a mistake because it really grossed me out when all of a sudden I was this female voice objectifying men. Hmm. It really turned me off, you know? So yeah, there were some hard, some hard lessons in the eighties about that, you know, keeping 
our identity as songwriters while still doing what was necessary, told by the label to have hits and be successful. It was a Faustian bargain and we, we couldn't sustain it for long. You move the clock forward a little bit and kids who sort of grew up in the 80s then become kids who are really coming of age in the early 90s. And a, an album like the Singles soundtrack um, was pivotal for both of us. And you come across this band called the Lovemongers um, yeah. on the Singles soundtrack doing this cover of Battle of Evermore, which I, you know, it, one of those things where you, when you hear somebody cover Zeppelin, you're like, oh boy, you know, let's, yeah. it, you know, let's, let's see what they can do with this. Yeah. And it was amazing. Um, and then look ahead then to this, I remember, you know, one of the performances that I have forwarded around social media a million times, I think, is um, you guys' version of Stairway to Heaven at the Kennedy Center Honors for oh, yeah. um, Led Zeppelin. So, you know, it, watching Robert Plant tear up as you sing that song, I'm like, who in the world could actually make Robert Plant visibly nostalgic about Led Zeppelin? <laughs> it seems so hard to get him to talk about those days or, or to sort of revisit them. And I could see this deep appreciation yeah. For, for what you did with that song. So uh, obviously he appreciated that version and obviously you have a deep appreciation for Zeppelin as well. I'd like to just hear a bit about that. Oh, totally, yeah. Uh, well, first, I think Plant probably does have a really deep, tender spot in his soul for Led Zeppelin. Um, mm. So much so that they don't want to go out there and try to be Zeppelin now without Bonham. Right. right. They don't want to become a caricature of their earlier perfect real thing by just hiring somebody else to play drums you know yeah and i really respect them for that um he he um yeah he obviously felt it that night it was pretty poignant mm. but zeppelin i thought they really at first they kind of scared me because i was a young virgin you know and their their attitude about sexuality and stuff was it was scary mm. and then then when I grew up, you know, and got a hold of the groove that they had, that whole groove that you just could not ignore, not escape from with Bonham and John Paul Jones, you know, like on a whole lot of love or something, forget right. it, forget it. You know, they uh, became, well, especially Plant became my first singing teacher. And I think I when I was just got into heart up in Canada and um, I hadn't sung any rock yet. And so the guys in that band wanted to do Led Zeppelin stuff, but none of them could sing that high. So it fell to me <laughs> and I, I figured out that I could sing like that, just mm. like in a basement, uh, basement rehearsal. And um, he became, I think I sat at plants feet for a couple of years while we were learning how to do that. And also Ian Gillen and uh, Elton John and a few others, Rod Stewart, they were all my my teachers in wow. the early days. By the way, I would say Whole Lot of Love is another one of those songs with audibly bad intentions. Oh, God, <laughs> the moment yes. it sets Oh, out. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and something like Immigrant Song, you know, or, right. or, or No Quarter, you know, just yeah. really brooding sort of what oh no where are we going here you know yeah, should right, i be right. here without a mask <laughs> <laughs> um well paul mentioned that that you guys as the love mongers which is which is you and and nancy and sue ennis uh had done that cover of, of 
Battle of Evermore on the singles soundtrack, but you guys have also released uh, original material as well, which I I find kind of fascinating because you're you're talking about the the three uh, main songwriters of Heart uh, putting out something as the Lovemongers. Uh, I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on on kind of what's the distinction for you uh, between you know Heart songs versus lovemonger songs uh, particularly given that that you're you're dealing with the same creative team well the lovemongers was our triage um as songwriters from being rejected in the 80s <laughs> you know where hmm. where uh we during the 80s we were writing bunches of songs and they were all passed over by the record company because they weren't what was happening on the radio and ah. so you know we were we were suitably upset and, and alienated by that. So when the eighties were finally over and we went back home to Seattle, we put the love mongers together to, uh, as a way to, um, to write our songs and perform our songs. And Frank Cox was in that band too. He's a very, has this beautiful tenor voice and the love mongers were, were all about heavy harmonies. And um, it was a really cool little acoustic band uh, that we could play our, own songs in and um we did that and it kind of helped us get over our our upset from being rejected in the 80s hmm. and then cameron crow who at, at that time was nancy's husband uh invited us to perform on uh, the single soundtrack and that that really was a soothing bomb to us you know <laughs> it's like yeah. okay you like me you really like me you know <laughs> Well, and, and in a way, there's kind of an embrace at the time of you guys by this this Seattle scene that was happening, um, which was getting a lot of attention at the time. And, and you guys were kind of the original Seattle band, you know, back when there was a, a real sense of place um, in where bands were from. I, you know, you guys were one of the, the earliest, really, really important bands I can think of that came out of Seattle. Yeah, you know, that um, I can think of. back when it was really super unhip to be from Seattle, <laughs> it was the opposite of the 90s. <laughs> you know, it was like, so where are you from? Where, you know? <laughs> we, we actually just spoke with uh, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. Uh -huh. um, and I know on your, and I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, your Sawit 8 um, EP. Sawit. So yeah. how hard should I go on the first syllable? <laughs> Not that heavy, just sweet. Sweet. Okay. So it's more on the second. Sweet. Um, yeah. You, you did a cover of Rooster on that record, which is such an amazing song. Um, and which, which seems to be sort of like a return of, of that embrace of the, of the Seattle bands. Um, but there also is a song called Black Wing, um, which I've heard you say was inspired by being on lockdown, but also has a sense of place in it because um, I, I read you talking about how that song was not only inspired by lockdown, but where you spent lockdown. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, in 2016, my husband and I moved to Florida, to North Florida, and um, we found ourselves a place on the St. John's River with a bunch of acreage and waterfront and everything. And it's, it's just beautiful. And we, uh, and then came lockdown, you know? And so we were here in the house for like a year looking out over this big river and all this big, the, the seabirds and everything and all the wildlife that's here in Florida because we're quite rural. And um, I felt that 
sort of envious of the birds and their ultimate freedom. They were out there just big wingspan guys, just floating wherever they wanted to go. They could go to New York if they wanted. They could go down to Miami, like they were free. So I started talking to them. And I think that's where Blackwing really came from. of of writing i mean i think the 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 pandemic has you know been a different experience for for different people for for some folks it was you know kind of paralyzing and for other folks they kind of tapped into a new era of uh, of creativity and um it's it's a time where you know you were obviously working because we we saw that EP come out and and now you've got the the new record um were a lot of these newer songs or, or you know new to us that we're hearing on these more recent um releases uh were these things that that came out of the pandemic that were that were newly written and and if so I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on um if sort of being forced to be on lockdown had uh, an effect on you in terms of kickstarting writing or maybe revisiting some concepts that you had, but just hadn't made the time to, to kind of, you know, finish them out. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a time that where all of a sudden after having been on the road for since the turn of the century, basically uh, it sounds weird, but that's, that's the truth. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, it was the first time I'd taken a year off in 20 years. And um, so at first it was difficult because you're going at this high rate of speed and you're all up, up on your pins, you know, ready for tour and all that kind of stuff. And um, to all of a sudden that stops and you go down to zero, it, it took a little while to get used to that. But pretty soon I realized that there was a peace and a serenity involved in that, that, um, that allowed me to just think and daydream and the quiet just really helped me start to write again. And, um, mm. the fact that I was in a new relationship that I really, really was into, I mean, that gave me some food for writing too. Sure. Uh, and, and just, yeah, just the peace and quiet and the steadiness of like, there's nothing I, there's nowhere to go tomorrow. So I can just look at, I can just write and yeah. it's okay. You know, I can stay in my jammies if I want. That, <laughs> that was really, really healthy. When you're writing, are you somebody who, who writes on guitar? Do you write on piano or do you just kind of hum melodies into a, a recorder? What's sort of your, your process? Well, for these most recent songs, I, I worked with um, one other musician, where I told them what I was thinking. And then for instance, Tom Bukovac would come back with, like I'd say, well, how about if this was a rocker, uh, kind of like think about Led Zeppelin, but don't be Led Zeppelin, you know, like come up mm, with a riff right. that that is really driving. And then, and then I'll come up with some chord ideas and I'll come up with the lyrics in their complete form. And so he would send me back his idea 
And then I'd sing to that. Like I'd stick his, his guitar idea on a Dropbox and just sing along with it as I wrote. Yeah. Because we couldn't get in the same room for a while. Uh, sure. Right. But when it came to actually recording, we did what was necessary to get in the same room and be all together looking at each other's eyes. Well, this is a question that is, you know, I like to ask it, but people don't like to be asked it because it's impossible to answer. Oh, great. <laughs> because, you know, if you're a songwriter, you know, it's it's a cliche, but it's true that songs are like children. You know, you, you care for and you nurture all your songs and you can't say that one's my favorite. But with, with that caveat, uh, if if someone were to ask you, hey, uh, we want to grab one of your songs that you've written and we want you to put it in a time capsule and this is going to be opened 250 years from now. And this is going to be representative of Ann Wilson, the songwriter. Is is there anything that kind of comes to your mind, whether it be a giant hit or an obscure album cut or maybe even a song you, you haven't recorded where there's something that kind of comes immediately to mind where you think, man, that's that's one I'm really proud of. Well, um, yeah, I think if, if I had to choose one from the whole body of work, it would be crazy on you because... I think it just has a it has a universality that could stand the test of time. Yeah. And it's just yeah. it's just all about wow, things are happening in the world. It's so crazy, it's so nutty. I'm so stressed out, but I have you, you know. We have our own little piece that we've made together. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. my saving grace. It's certainly a song that I don't think anyone else could have written or could have performed. So it's um, something that that only you and only Hart could have brought to the world. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing to to look at the body of work that you have done and are still doing. Um, it's an honor for us to speak to you today. So um, thank you for spending time with Songcraft today. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do, and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 